HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, celebrating 100 years of being a dairy farm family-owned cooperative. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. This week on Meat and 3, we celebrate good news in the food world, from record-setting butter sculptures to the latest discoveries in crop cultivation. I think it was back in 2015. It was 2,370 pounds, and it was a Paris landscape. And so that became the Guinness World Record butter sculpture. We don't understand everything about the world. So plant breeding also lets us work with all the unknown, maybe discovered along the way. And we hear from the beloved chef and disaster relief organizer, Jose Andres. Well, World Central Kitchen, we're an organization that we like to be the first ones on the ground. And more often than not, we are the last ones on the ground. Tune in to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Good afternoon, curd nerds. Welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I am Aaron Foster, your host for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, Some of you may not know this about me. I own Foster Sundry. It's a cheese shop, but it's also a butcher shop. And uh, this week over at the shop, we're we're doing something a little bit different. um, And we are bringing in um, a retired dairy cow uh, to to sell as as our beef this week. And it got me thinking uh, sort of about sustainability and about how that works and, and about the beef we normally carry and the beef that people normally eat. And uh, I thought it would be a really good conversation to have with a farmer who can tell us a little bit more about this. And it's actually the farmer who uh, milked the, the animal for uh, pretty much her, her whole life and, and then sent her down our way. So please let me introduce uh, Dan Brooks of uh, Wayward Goose Farm. Dan is a fifth-generation dairy farmer, I believe, Um, and since 2011 has owned uh, Wayward Goose with his spouse, Laurie. Um, Laurie works on the farm. Uh, Their their son, Peter, uh, works nearby and owns a brewery. Uh, He's making beer, and then their daughter, Margot, is is also uh, in the biz uh, and is making cheese over at Sugar House Creamery, Um, and we're huge fans of of their cheese as well. So I'd like to, to welcome Dan. Hi, Dan. Hey, how are you? Thanks again for for joining us. You're uh, we're reaching you where in in West Pollitt in Vermont. Correct. Yeah, 
correct. Great. Um, and I appreciate you being flexible on uh, having the the talk a little bit before milking. I know I tried to, to get you at exactly the wrong moment earlier. Yeah, this works. This works much better. Thanks. <laughs> Good. Um, so why don't you tell us just a little bit about Wayward Goose, about your history, um, and, and how you kind of came to to end up doing what you're doing? Because I, I think it's obviously farming is, is a huge part of uh, the American cultural landscape. But, you know, I'm sitting here in Brooklyn in a shipping container watching people eat fancy pizza. Yeah. Um, so, so why don't you paint us a picture? Uh, well, so the farm that I grew up on and worked on and raised my family at, um, my daughter, Margot went away to school, decided she wanted to, uh, do something sustainable in farming and kind of wanted to come back to our farm and do something there. But the rest of my family wasn't, uh, interested in that. So it's a long story, but we ended up, uh, here in West Pollitt on a much smaller operation and uh, making cheese milk for Consider Bardwell that's right next door to us. So the um, the farm you were originally on, was it was it nearby uh, uh, was it nearby West Pollitt or, or somewhere else? No, it was it was about three hours uh, southwest near Cooperstown, New York. Gotcha. And it was just the family kinda split apart and decided to, to do something different? Yeah, there, there was kind of a crossroads. It didn't look like there was any room for any of my kids to uh, come back and work with us on the farm. And Margot had gotten a job working to learn how to make cheese at Consider Bardwell next door to here. Yes, and I should say and, we love uh, Margot's cheeses. Um, we're we're uh, huge thanks. fans. And uh, on the very early, before we opened Sundry, we kind of took a sourcing trip to meet some of our early farmers, both meat suppliers and cheese suppliers and and got a chance to go up there and stay with her. And it was, uh, it was great. Oh, great. Um, Yeah. So, so so you guys started. And so the, put us in time here. We're, we're early 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. Yeah. January of 2011, we, we moved here and we bought a farm that hadn't been a dairy farm in, uh, a few decades, I would guess. Um, we haven't found out for sure, but uh, so it had an old dairy barn on it, needed a lot of work, and we spent the winter uh, remodeling the barn, and we're about ready for cows in the spring, and um, so the the uh, we started out with three brown Swiss cows. We got a good deal on three uh, yearling heifers when we when we were midway through our first winter. And we bought those, and then when we were ready to get more milking cows in the spring, a herd of Jersey cows came up for sale that looked good, so we bought some of those. And and so with and the idea, most, I mean, three cows sounds like a small number of cows. What was the um, what was the original plan? Were you where was it always tied to providing milk for local dairies for cheese that I should say cheesemakers, or was the idea to kind of sell into the milk chain and and go that route? Mm. No, the idea was always to uh, to make milk for Consider Bardwell. They were right next door and needed needed another milk uh, cow milk supply, and and so we. So was Margo really the out. connection there? Uh, like you didn't know about them uh, or weren't planning on kind of working with them? Because I imagine it must be a, a really important partnership 
Um, and so, yeah, Margo, Margo was the connection. She, she went there to learn how to make cheese with the thought of coming back to our farm. But that, when that didn't work out, we, uh, sold our share of that and moved here. So oh, that's a really you know, nice we, kind of kismet there. Yeah. And so, uh, why Brown Swiss? I imagine that wasn't what you were milking before. <laughs> Uh, no, we milked Holsteins. Uh, we did rotational grazing and milked about 92 cows. Our barn held 92 cows and had some crosses, some Swiss crosses. And I had I had always liked the Swiss, but we weren't sure what we were going to milk here. We knew it needed to be a high component uh, breed. Right. So you're so not just looking out- for volume. You're looking for fat and uh protein and all the Correct, important yeah. components for and, cheese uh, making yeah and they and consider bardwell has some pretty strict uh parameters for for their milk we can't feed any fermented feed so it's all dry hay and uh grass and a little bit of grain right so why don't we take a just a, we should step aside for one moment and say um that we love consider Bardwell, we we love their cheeses. They're going through a bit of a, a tough spot right now with a with a recall, um, and I could speak to that, or you could. Um, yeah, I can I can I can say what I know. I sure, know yeah. that they they did a voluntary recall, um, you know, to preemptively make sure that no uh, no affected cheese got on the market and. And they've uh, tested everything at the facility and hadn't had any uh, positive results. Any, any, um, you know, all the all the results were negative. So the FDA has just got to give them the okay to start making cheese again, I believe. And and the last word we got was that they would be starting up again in early November. Right. It's a. I mean, it's a, obviously it's a nightmare scenario for any cheesemaker, but it also sounds like it more or less went according to plan, and that they had, you know, they their yeah. preparations in place to deal with something like this should it ever occur. Yep. And uh, yeah, and they. I think things are going very well. Um, you know, obviously nobody wants to go through a recall, but of course, um, yeah. and and while while this is all happening, we're we're very appreciative that one of their thoughts among the many that they have is, uh, you know, finding a place for our milk. So our milk is going to Grafton and it's being made into a cloth bound cheddar in the, in the interim. So that's great. Is it going, is it being separated made to a, like a specific cheddar? Is it being blended with their other milk sources? Do you know? I, I think, uh, from what I know, they, they are blending, our milk with the other producer that produces for Consider Bardwell, hauling it all. So it's so it's oh, our great. two yeah. milk combined, but sort they're making the one profile. specific. Correct. They're making one specific uh, cheese out of just that milk. Well, I will reach out to them and make sure that we get some of that cheese into the shop at the well, very thanks. least. <laughs> um, that's yeah, great. I'm I mean, it's, it must be hard for you um, or just challenging um, being so intertwined with another business in that, in that way. Yeah, it is. It, I mean, we we really love being so connected to a product and seeing exactly where our milk goes. But but it is, you know, all our eggs are in one basket, so to speak. <laughs> right. And uh, so we're, you know, we're we're tied to that too. But we're we're very happy to to be, uh, 
you know, to know the product that our cheat that our milk's being made into instead of just being loaded on a truck um, and mixed with every other farm's milk and right. not I mean, knowing what happens to it. I have to imagine that model just wouldn't. I mean, you you don't sound like you're set up for that model to work in any eventuality. No, exactly. No, we could never make it in the commodity milk market um, at our size. So this is it's pretty specific what we're doing here and. Uh, and we, you know, we've we've explored doing our own processing, but it's uh, it's a daunting thing, and um, so we're, you know, we're very happy that Consider Bardwell is going to be starting up again. And yeah, that's great. I mean, I think it, it, it's kind of an ideal solution. I mean, it's a solution that, as a cheesemonger, as an early cheesemonger, I, I really I've thought a lot about farmstead cheeses, and when we talk about farmstead cheeses, we think about cheeses that are made from the milk from the same farm as the dairy, um, but it's also a model that. Uh, you know, puts all of the onus on the one particular producer to do everything, to <clears throat> care for the animals, right. milk the animals, uh, make the cheese, age the cheese, sell and market the cheese, ship the cheese. Um, Correct. Yeah, and in Europe, it's quite different. Yeah. <coughs> um, so how many animals do you have now? So we have 28 uh, mature cows. Most of them are Jerseys. We uh, have one one uh, brown Swiss heifer out of Alice, actually, that's going to be calving in a month or so. But the rest are all uh, Jerseys now. So, gotcha. Um, and we'll uh, I think we'll we'll introduce you to Alice just before the break. Um, <laughs> so, the milk uh, you're milking twice a day. That milk goes over. Well, right now it's going to Grafton, but would normally be going to CBF. Um, consider Bardwell. Like what is a what's a typical day look like for you? Oh well, I in in the summertime I get up, uh, get the cows in, and if I need to wash the bulk tank, I do that to begin with, and the cows munch on a little hay if they're if they want it in the barn while they're waiting, and then we've got a little four cow step through. Uh, milking parlor with a viewing window so people can uh, come and visit and open the window talk to me while I'm milking without <laughs> uh, getting it with getting in too close and that works out well we or talk to the cows right I mean let's who wants to talk to you sure. right? I mean, you're busy yeah <laughs> yep and we we have a little farm store so people can come here and buy buy milk and eggs and uh, maple syrup and honey and different things and, and so then, then uh, the cleanup after milking, and then I go set up a pasture, which is pretty quick. I have a movable poly wire with flexible uh, fiberglass posts, and very quick to move the cows to a new paddock and get them back outside for the day, and then start again milking that night. Yeah, we touched on this really briefly, but what I guess now is a good time to talk about rotational grazing and, and what that means for you and, and kind of why you choose sure. to do it. Um, do you want to give us, I could do it, or do you want to, maybe I'd love to hear just a, uh, a short overview of, of what rotational grazing looks like for you guys. Um, and obviously it's going to be different seasonally, but. Sure. So, uh. Basically, rotational grazing is is that you put the cows in a small area um, of good grass and let them eat it very quickly in one 12-hour 12, 12 uh, session. 
and then move them. So the way we do it is move them out every 12 hours. So every time after they get milked, they go into a fresh uh, patch of grass, basically. And wow. I have to imagine try you don't to get away it. very much. No, we don't get away very much. That's <laughs> one of the drawbacks. Uh, we, you know, we can't really afford a full-time hired person, and it's really hard to find somebody that can milk just a milking or two on a weekend. But right, milking babysitter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're moving them every 12 hours, and over how? Like, what kind of what size land? How much land are we talking? Well, we only have 20 acres of uh, good pasture land with our farm. So, so we we move them through that, and in the spring, 20 acres is enough for a while. But then the grass growth slows in the in the uh, hotter part of the summer, and so we just have to feed them uh, in some round bale feeders on the hill where they have shade and water and and wait until the grass is sufficient to get them back through the rotation again. And and then in winter, they're hanging out in the barn mainly? Yeah, and in the winter, they're always able to go in and out of the barn, so it's kind of loose housing with some stalls, and then we have another shed that the sun shines in, and, and uh, it's got rubber mats on the floor with uh, shavings on top of that, and they really, really like to be in there. We just got funding to build a composted uh, composting barn for our manure storage and a covered hay feeding area. So we're excited to try those out this winter. Awesome. That's uh, so. That just as you kind of move forward, you're you're building on aspects of the process that uh, make it easier, make it a little bit more sustainable. Is that more or less right? Yeah, that's right. And. So the manure storage barn, we also want to put solar power on the roof, and and uh, that should generate all we need for our farm and our house and still have a little bit extra that we can send to our son at his brewery, and he can use whatever we don't need. That's pretty wild. That's really cool, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I hope that's the future, um, but it's interesting because it does sound like you have to make certain lifestyle sacrifices to to make some of these kinds of things happen. Yeah, it's true. It's 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 hard to get away, even though uh, most of our our kids are a couple couple hours away. It's still hard to see them when we have to be back for milking at night, or right. You know, if we don't if we don't have a whole day, it's tough to make it there. Uh, I imagine, and also uh, Margot probably has the same problem. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely. It's definitely a problem uh, for anybody that's running a a small farm like this. I, I think, and I will say one uh, of the um one of the sort of most moving experiences I had, uh, or funniest, with just a conversation about rotational grazing was with with Margot. Um, when we were there, we just kind of walked by. We were touring the pasture and um, just stepped right over a big old cow patty. And yeah. um, she kind of stops us and like puts her boot in it and kind of spreads it around and goes, "Man, this is just a perfect pile of shit here." Uh, <laughs> yep. She says, "Next year, you know, this is going to be just a, a big thicket of 
um, flowers and and all sorts right. of other good stuff, and the cows are going to come back and eat this and make all the better cheese for it. So I look yep. at this pile of shit, and it is just to me that's future delicious cheese, and yep. it just it totally <laughs> stuck with me. So I took a photo of it and put it on a postcard, uh, and now uh, now we have people sending um, piles, you know, pictures of cow shit all around. It's. Uh, <laughs> Um, so I would say we're, why don't we, we're going to take a short break, but, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the other side of this, which is, um, introducing our listeners to Alice and talking about kind of some other ways to, uh, generate revenue for a small dairy farm to keep things sustainable. And, and, And I think, I think respectfulness is also part of this conversation. So, um, we're going to tune out for a second and, uh, we'll chat with you again shortly. Thanks. Cabot Creamery is proud to be celebrating 100 years making the world's finest dairy products. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, to healthy land and a sustainable future. A century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most, family and community. The simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, the best is always still to come. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. Hi, my name is Sam Ben Ruby, and I'm the host of The Great Nation on Heritage Radio Network. With this show, we bring wine to the people. Each week, we bring the best guests in wine on, taste different wines on air, and invite our listeners to taste with us. You'll find our approach to wine decidedly unsnobby. You can find The Grape Nation wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we are back. Again, this is Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Aaron Foster, your host, and I'm here with Dan Brooks of Wayward Goose Farm. Um, When we left off, we were talking about rotational grazing. We were talking about the... Uh, exigencies of small dairy life. Um, but now I'd like to talk about Alice. Um, so why don't you, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Alice? So Alice is one of the original, uh, Brown Swiss that we bought the first, first year we were here. Um, she, she's been a great cow. Uh, she's a Brown Swiss, um, so we sent her to Eagle Bridge direct to the slaughterhouse and uh Well here, let's back up for to... a second. Let's um Sure. <laughs> <laughs> let's just right into the so, and jumped, it's funny because right, right. jump too far. Most people I mean most people this is an interesting conversation we have at the shop. Um yeah. and so as I said, Foster Sundry were a butcher shop, cheese shop, cafe, and we work with small uh, small New England farms for our beef. Um, we don't generally do much with retired dairy cattle, although we have once or twice in the past. Um, you know, we we people I think these days are very interested in sustainability. I mean, and, and I don't want to keep sure. using this word without defining it, but I'll ju- I'll just leave it there for a second. Sustainability. They're interested in knowing in, in eating locally and knowing quote where their food comes from, and, and I think that's I mean I think that's a super interesting. A- 
and I, I like sort of ethically or, or morally upright trend. But it's right. I, I often find that that interest stops at knowing the name of your food, um, uh, yeah. and it's and it, this is something that I you know I feel strongly about. I you know when I first um, I sort of had a, a an ethical crisis, let's say, about eating meat um, in my early twenties, and I learned to raise and kill pigs and slaughter them and 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 turn them into food and. Um, that right. was like a very sort of moving and important moment because I had seen the pigs come up and, and go from piglets and to full size pigs and then, um, you know, and then, and then turn them into food. And that, that moment when an animal becomes, goes from an animal being food is, is a very sort of intense personal moment. And, um, I think, you know, I, I don't want to make this decision for other people, but I often kind of talk about how, if you're not willing to slaughter the animal that you are eating, then maybe you're not you're not really engaging with your food in the way that you think you are yeah i def- definitely think there's a there's a big disconnect and that's that's overall in farming i think uh there's so many big farms now and a lot less small you know family size farms and so i think uh you know that there's a huge disconnect between people in the in the farms and the food and the animals and well, it's funny this trend um, towards convenience, right? Like we, you know, we're very interested in 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 convenience, particularly as, as a New Yorker. Um, you know, it's something that we that we value and and speed and convenience and uh, detachment. But at the same time, we really do, uh, as a good Brooklyner, I think trumpet this this idea that we want to eat local and eat sustainable. Um, and I, so you know, we kind of I don't want to say we took a chance, but we. When, when you guys reached out to us um, about Alice um, and said that you had a retired dairy cow uh, that you wanted to find a home for, like that was something that was very appealing to me personally just because I felt like it allows us to have those conversations. And, you know, as it's not always in, in the best interest as a business owner for me to force people's kind of feet to the flame, um, but it, I think it's an important conversation to have. And... Uh, I think it's it, it, it's also important for cheese people, e- even if you don't eat meat, to understand um, what happens to these animals when they're when they're done milking. Because I think even if you're a, a vegetarian and and you are a big cheese fan, I think probably we don't give a lot of thought to that. Yeah, it's true. Uh, <clears throat> and the the same with the with the veal we we raise some of our calves for veal and you know people are just uh so put off by the word veal until they till they hear the alternatives and right. hear why we're raising some of them for veal and so so in the uh so for a cow like alice we we it's unusual for a cow to last 10 years, first of all, a dairy cow, but we're finding that a lot of our cows last uh, 8 to 10. Our oldest cow is 13 right now, which is pretty unheard of. And wow. And she's still milking. In like a, and she's still milking, yep, and she's still doing well. And so the only reason we needed to get rid of Alice is that uh, last winter she had a little bit of difficulty on the on the concrete in the winter and we decided made the decision not to breed her back and and um <clears throat> so she milked all summer and and then we had a date for her to go to slaughter uh in the fall 
but we we really don't like to send our cows just to an auction. First of all, they have to go through the stress of going through an auction and then get loaded on a truck and trailer and probably end up at uh, a huge packing plant in Pennsylvania. And so we just feel so connected to our cows. We'd rather we we try to send them direct to the slaughterhouse and then sell the meat out of our own farm store, which works well but we didn't really have room for another one at this at this time so that's how we happened to get in contact with you yeah i think that's um you know it's 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 interesting a that if when you think about a lot of factory farming operations that the cows are milked so aggressively um that they really only milk for 3 or 4 or 5 years um yeah. and the fact that you know these animals are are milking out you know past 10 years or so um is is pretty significant and it's in it if for if you're interested in in consuming cheese this is a cheese show after all um from you know made from milk that comes from small dairy farms um traceable small dairy farms in new england or locally um this is going to be a a natural sort of end stage for for these animals um and I think, you know, I, I mentioned the word respect earlier. I think the, you know, the animal, the animal's nearing the end of its lifespan. Um, the, the best way to respect and honor it is to, is to slaughter humanely and treat it um, carefully and not waste it and not have it go into anonymous burger patties from Costco. Or, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Uh, anonymous <laughs> burger patties or, um, you know, or pet food. Um, yeah, yeah, we would, we would much rather that it's, and we've, we've eaten these, you know, these older dairy animals ourselves and it's really, really good. You just have to know, know that it's different. It's different, you know, it's, it's a different kind of meat and it's got a lot more flavor. The burger is amazing. Um, yeah, we got the animal this morning and began to, to break it down and, um, it, I mean, it's just visually quite different, and uh, you know, we reach out. Yeah. To where we'll have some signage and things for our customers this week. That's just kind of um, just to just like ask us about this if you're interested. Like our beef sure. is from yeah. you know from from you guys, and as a retired dairy dairy cow, and and sort of yeah. ask ask us what that means if you're interested. And and we recognize that people have boundaries, and and again, don't want to push people, but it's. Um, you know, I, I always, I, I particularly think of, of cheese people and, and think of, of cheese vegetarians and wonder yeah, you know, what that, um, because the alternative really sucks, um, is to like the idea of just, you know, sending the animal to, to auction or, or to whatever. And I think it's also, it's important to talk about, um, the fact that with a small farm like yours, the, the revenue streams are few and, um, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I can't, I, I, I I'm not speaking for your personal finances, obviously, but it's, um, it's, it's another way to sort of generate revenue and it's a respectful way. Yep, definitely. And it just makes us feel, feel really good that, uh, that you guys see the importance of this kind of, kind of, uh, dairy beef and, and, uh, we just, we just read an article in the New York, New Yorker about the, uh, like the, the um, beyond beef or whatever it is, right? The, Impossible the people that meats. don't believe, yeah, and that 
and it didn't mention that there was like anything in between feedlot beef and uh, and not beef, no beef at all. And we think this is a more sustainable type of beef because this cow lasted this long. First of all, we didn't have to raise three heifers to replace her, as as we would in a you know a more conventional dairy setting. And she's a uh, you know, picking her own grass, harvesting her own feed, spreading her own manure all through that 10 years and growing all of that grass that uh, helps helps uh, soak up the carbon. So that's right. I'm not, we don't... I'm not a scientist and I don't know <laughs> what the actual numbers are for all of that. But to me, it's uh, it's much better than feedlot beef. That's Sure. You know, they're not being so. pumped full of grain and generating more right. methane. Um, you're not running huge combines around, um, right. to spread manure. Um, so it's, it, it's certainly again, right. I'm not a scientist either, but, um, there's something intuitively understandable about that. Um, that gives you, you know, yeah, that just makes you feel, I, I think ought to make you feel if you've chosen to eat meat a little bit better and more edified, uh, about it. Right. Um, yeah. And our, our daughter did a semester in Morocco, and she brought back a tagine from Morocco. And I noticed on your on your website, you do you have a Moroccan uh, meal that uh, that type of beef cooked like that in a tagine with you know with some Moroccan spices is just amazing. Um, we'll make sure to recommend that to uh, to our our customers this week. Um, sure. And we should we should talk about veal for a second too, because again, you've, as you said, veal is a veal. For diners, I think you know since the mid '90s, early 2000s, um, you know diners at least in you know in, in coastal elite diners, let's say, um, it yeah. has been sort of a dirty word. Um, yeah, and you know I think it's sort of been partly rebranded as rose veal, um, but um, you know veals. I mean, you can you can tell us this as well, but veal veal are just the the boy cows. <laughs> Yeah, and we we're always surprised it happens quite often. We we uh, have an Airbnb apartment, and people will come to visit the farm store and chat with me when I'm milking. And it's it's uh, always amazing to me how many people don't realize that a cow has to give birth every <laughs> year to to keep giving milk. But, right. You know, it's so it's you know I think when people understand that there that there is these there are these calves that need need uh something some use and but um i think it's hard to hard to get people to think beyond their already perception of veal you know and see that there's another way and it's not doesn't doesn't need to be raised the way they think it is and so yeah this around. when i grew up it was just historically this this very white almost pork right very light looking meat and we i think it was even sold as like milk fed veal um massaged or something i mean just but it it was the the less movement the better and when you and you think about that like it's a horrible idea um and and what we're talking about here is just not allowing these animals to grow up and become bulls because there's only so many bulls you can use and you're not probably using any right um, cause you're inseminating or. Yeah, we, we do all of our own artificial insemination, except we have, <clears throat> we have one bull that we raised with our, uh, with our heifers that are out on pasture. It's just much easier than trying to catch them. But 
Right. Generally, generally <laughs> no. Yeah, generally there's no bulls here. No bull at Wayward Goose Farm. That's yeah. Um, so it's yeah. That's uh, those animals in order to again for them not to become pet food or 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 to be confined for. I mean, there's still but must be a tremendous market for veal in the U.S. Even though I think general customer taste has changed, and those animals are are confined and in, in in really just not really unpleasant situations and, and uh, scenarios. And the idea that you can eat veal and that it actually creates a revenue stream for a small farm is sustainable and is a, is a more humane uh, solution than the alternative. Um, yeah, correct. And it's just a, it's just a matter of getting people to, uh, I guess getting people to try it and, you know, to, to think about it enough in those terms to to want to try it. So well, and I think people have to understand if there's no veal, there's probably no cheese, right? Yeah, it's true. There's got to be there's got to be some sort of an outlet. And a lot of the breeds, like the the jerseys, the bull bull calves, are just not. Uh, you know, even even if you you can't even sell them at the auction now for veal growers because they won't take them. Wow. Because they're such a small, slow-growing breed, so we we breed a lot of the cows to Angus so that they grow that that the veal will grow faster, and then we don't have as many pure Jersey bulls. And uh, and that just uh, otherwise you're you're almost expending capital to get rid of them. Yeah, they they. Uh, yeah, there's there's not much alternative. If you raise them for a bull, there you could raise it for a whole year and not get uh, not get as much as you can for for a veal. But you know, it's, it takes up a lot of resources to raise raise all the calves too. Right. I mean, that's another thing about the dairy cows is like you could keep her around uh, for a little bit longer, but um, the resources to care for her and and um, you know, especially as an animal becomes older, it becomes harder for her to move around and continue to eat what she wants to eat. And um, there becomes a point yeah. at which it it is just again more human, more sustainable to. Yeah, and in a in a perfect world, we'd have a retirement pasture where they could just go live out their days. But that's that's not the way it that's not the way it is economically or or and feasibly in any way. We we just couldn't. Right. And I think that's, I mean, that's, a, you know, not to end on, on, a, on a bittersweet note, right? But it, it, I think it's, it's important for people to understand that this is like all of this stuff that we, that I, that I think cheese people especially try, if they don't, I don't want to say try not to engage with, but tend not to engage with. Um, right. These are all sort of essential parts of dairying and of creating like the high quality milk that goes into your favorite cheeses and um without kind of these sorts of plans and and finding ways to reduce resource use um increase revenue um and and tell the story about these animals um there you know we wouldn't be able to you wouldn't be able to produce as uh the high quality milk that you you wouldn't have the freedom to do what it is that you want to do Right. I mean, yeah, and it's 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 very helpful that uh Peter Henry was able to make the connection for us too because I've I've always thought like there that this kind of beef would be good in the in the city, but I have no idea how to connect with someone one like you, so that's 
it's an important uh, link that he's provided for us and yeah we should appreciate ab- it absolutely thank peter from uh from consider bardwell and uh been a friend yes. for a long time and uh he's uh helped us out uh i think with with veal calves in the past the occasional veal calf and and this was i, I think this just made perfect sense to me and and allowed us to have a conversation that we don't normally have and and um i think it's good to shake things up every now and then sure well um, well, Dan, I think we've got to finish up, but I, I, I very, very much appreciate your time. Thank you for thank you for for making time for us and and for talking about this. And uh, thank you for Alice. Um, we're really excited, and we will do right by her. Well, thanks. I appreciate it, and let me know how it how it goes. I will do. Thanks so much. Uh, and this thanks. has been um, Cutting the Curd Radio again. I'm Aaron Foster, your host, and uh, our guest today was Dan Brooks of. Uh, Wayward Goose Farm, and we really appreciate having him on. Uh, We'll see you next time. Thank you. This program is powered by Simplecast. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.